0: Pain, John, go ahead and make your way up here. This is Neil and Lauren, and Lauren's coming for baptism today. And so, uh, sweet thing that we get to have this as part of our corporate worship this morning. Um, baptism um, uh, is an appeal to God for, for a clear conscience, and God reckons something sweet in these moments. And if you're paying attention, you may be thinking, now they've been members for a while. What gives? Is that how it works? Can you just join and figure out the baptism thing, whatever? no, that's not how it works, but it's how it works this time because we got to work through some stuff. We, when we met originally, we talked through baptism. Everything seemed copacetic is I guess the word I'll use this morning in baptism. And, uh, and then in the coming months, as Lauren heard some more sermons on baptism and witnessed some more baptisms and had more discussions, she, she ended up, um, her and Neil came to me and said, hey, I'm not sure if that's what I did, and so we talked through it, and the result is them moving in in faithfulness this morning to come be baptized, and I'll let Neil explain that more, so y'all go ahead.
1: (laughs) So I wrote my uh, speech down on paper, uh, because Scott said he would cut me off at like 30 minutes, so I figured I would stay by the book, um, and let Lauren sit in the water for as long as possible. Uh, so we're excited to be up here today, uh, extremely excited that each and every one of you gets to take part um, in this, and uh, we're excited to have our intermediate or intermediate family uh, with us today. Immediate, thank you. Immediate family uh, with us today. This is why they don't give me a mic very often. Um, so Lauren's faith journey kind of started out as, as a child. Um, her parents uh, dedicated her um, to be raised in a God-fearing home um, and with the help of the Wesley United, United Methodist family. Um, and then she went to college and God really opened up her eyes and she started uh, living a lifestyle um, with, with, that paramount, with that paramount in mind, uh, just being a believer. Um, and so I had the honor to meet her about four years ago. Uh, and two years ago, uh, I became her husband and, and took a little bit um, more of a leadership role in her, her faith journey. Um, and so here we are today. And this is the part that I want to get right. So I'll read that. So um, I'm on the back page already. Look at us flying. Uh, so... Lauren, do you believe that Christ has done a work in your soul and that, Christ, uh, that in Christ you are counted righteous before God? Yes. Do you believe that there is any other way to God except through his son, Jesus Christ? No. Then in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you, buried with him in death, and raised to walk in the newness of life.
0: scripture in our scripture for the sermon this morning. Um, If you haven't already turned to Isaiah 35, go ahead and turn there. Kind of different, normally we turn to our main scripture and eventually turn to some other scriptures, but right now I'm asking you all to turn to Isaiah 35 and stay there. We're staying in it the whole morning. Um, Before I launch off into this morning's sermon, I actually want to take just a minute to do two things. Um, This is my first time back in the pulpit since my sabbatical, it was a three-month sabbatical. And I just want to thank you guys. I want to thank this body for being so generous, for being the type of body that's led by the type of men who look out for those who are serving and and make sure there's room for rest and growth. And so our sabbatical was a blessing. I thank y'all for that. There was lots of rest. There was lots of growth. And there was a lot of fun. I got an eight, six, three, and three-year-old, and we had a ton of fun. and, And we really got some good rest and growth. So Hopefully that'll continue even though sabbatical is over, It's got the post-sabbatical blues a little bit, um, but, but we're very, very thankful for that and I just want to say that to you guys because, um, because I'm thankful. Second thing I'd like to do before we dive in is, thank, is welcome our visitors. One of the privileges that we have during this time of year is maybe you're here with a friend, uh, maybe you're here with family, um, but we get to, to worship corporately with, with new brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we want you to know we count it a real privilege, and we hope you feel very welcome. We hope you're blessed by our time together this morning. Let's pray, and we'll launch off into the sermon. Lord, we come to you now, and we thank you. How sweet it is this morning to humble ourselves before a God who is so good. How sweet it is to start our morning off with worship and song, baptism, scripture reading, lighting of the Advent candle, Lord, I, I pray that we are anticipating um, good things this morning and good things even beyond this morning. Lord, specifically, we would like to do as we do every week and pray for another local church. We pray uh, for Wesley United Methodist Church. Pray that they are enjoying you this morning. I pray for Pastor Gene, uh, Gene Wisdom. Um, and uh, just pray that you would bless him this morning. Um, I pray uh, for his, his family, his marriage. And just pray that he would be leading in such a way that he puts you on display in every area of life and that he's leading the people this morning to really enjoy our Savior. I also pray for a local official. As your word tells us to pray, we pray for Mayor uh, Steve Reed. And just pray that he would lead in a way that is uh, a blessing to others and that he would lead those on his staff in a way that is a blessing to others. Lord, as we get to, I'm excited that we get to walk through the encouragement of Isaiah 35 this morning. And so I pray that you would bless this time as you see fit, guide our hearts, guide our minds to anticipate what we should anticipate and to enjoy what we should enjoy. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're continuing our Advent series. This is the third sermon in the Advent series and it is titled, The Ransomed Shall Return. If you don't take notes, I always encourage people to take notes. Usually, I don't always remember everything I hear and I need to go back and review it. And scripture actually says think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding. And so I encourage you to take notes. So the title is The Ransomed Shall Return. As many of you know, Advent um, has to do with, the, with coming, the, to do with the, um, the coming of the Lord. So our, part of our aim in these sermons is to anticipate the coming Christ. But for us, there are two parts that need to be considered. And those two parts are the already and the not yet. Again, if you're taking notes, write down the already and the not yet. That, that's, that's the reality for us as we sit here. It's a little different for the Israelites who heard this prophecy, and we'll get to that. But the already and the not yet. Even in the phrase, the ransomed shall return, there is a sense of both. We are ransomed by Christ. He has already done a work that is complete. And we shall return later. Not yet, but we will return to our Lord. So the already and the not yet will be a theme that you need to be well aware of this morning. In one sense, Christ has already come to earth, born of a virgin. He lived the perfect life. He died the perfect death. He conquered death. He ascended into heaven and thereby paid the debt of sin that we owed to God. So already Jesus came and saved us, but then there's the not yet because Jesus is still coming back to save us. There is transformation that will happen in full in the future that has only happened in part in the present. And if you were paying attention when they were reading Isaiah 35, it's all about transformation and how God makes things beautiful and complete. And that's the direction we're going this morning. For the Israelite, though, this entire prophecy is not yet as it was shared hundreds of years before Christ. And to understand how the Israelite would have received these words in this chapter in Isaiah 35, we need to understand the context of Isaiah 35. The ESV study Bible explains that the big threat at this time was Assyria. So they were under threat from Assyria. I've been out of the pulpit for like three and a half months. I got cotton mouth. Maybe I'm nervous. Hmm. Got my water here. Their threat was Assyria. And and the threat was was pretty significant, and God's people are in large part being rebellious because they're craving worldly security because of a worldly threat. God's people are craving worldly security because of a worldly threat, and the way this might pan out is the northern kingdom pressuring the southern kingdom to maybe make an alliance with another country who's strong, but the problem is they craved their worldly security so much that they were willing to make alliances with countries who despised Yahweh. That's how much they crave worldly security. Rather than trusting the promises of Yahweh, they were willing to make alliances with countries who despised Yahweh. And as followers of, of Christ, we know that that's not okay. That's not a good solution to a worldly threat. They were craving worldly security because of this worldly threat, and the question forced upon Judah by this threat was a question of trust. We're talking this morning a lot about trust, a question of trust. And what will God's people trust for salvation? Human strategies of self-rescue or in the prophetic promises of divine grace? Are they gonna look at the worldly threats and try to come up with a worldly solution for worldly security? Are they gonna look at those worldly threats and like so many in Hebrews looked at Rome and said, this is not my ultimate reality. Will they look beyond it and say, you know what, I trust the promises of our good God. So where, where will their trust lie? Where, we're all, where, where will our trust lie and it's in that context that we enter into Isaiah 35, which is a flood of illustration and a flood of anticipation, and what I hope will be a real flood of encouragement for us this morning. Isaiah 35, look at verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. A crocus is a rose sort of thing, but not exactly a rose. And I was, I was wondering, why did he say crocus? Maybe there's some deep meaning. I want to find that. And all I found was a bunch of commentators who said, Rose is more poetic than crocus. Just use rose. That's all they had. There was no deep meaning apparently. So blossom like the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. It's all encouragement. The previous chapters up to 35 are pretty horrific. Even if you were to read just through chapter 34, you would see that they're very intentionally almost opposite of one another, contrasting one another because the previous chapters up to chapter 35 in Isaiah are about God's judgment, about how God is going to return as the destroyer and pronounce judgment and execute judgment on those who have turned from him. It's a warning to those who are called his people who would turn, and it's a warning to those outside of God's people who are rejecting Yahweh. And so what we have here is Isaiah 35 lying in very significant contrast to these previous verses where God's people are hearing all this judgment, and you could imagine if all I sat and talked about for maybe like 10 minutes was just the judgment of God. He's coming back in wrath. The wrath of God is towards unrighteousness, because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. After maybe 10 minutes of that, y'all might be like, I'm kind of freaked out about God coming back. But he knows that we're prone to such things. And so he brings in Isaiah 35 after these many chapters of judgment to show that his people, show his people, that something better is in store for them. That's what he wants to show his people in Isaiah 35. Something different, something better awaits you. It's a comfort for his people. He wants his children to know that something different is in store for them. And what he does is he starts by explaining what glorious things will happen in the least glorious places. Right in these first few verses, we see a desert, which is known for dry. Sandy conditions, blossoming like a rose. Now, if you've ever seen a rose blossom, it's quite beautiful. Um, it's, it's full of life, and, and it's, just, it's, it's a glorious thing. And you know that only God can do that. He's the one who makes flowers grow. You can plant all you want, but you don't make flowers grow. He does. It's beautiful. And to imagine that such glory could happen to the desert is massive transformation. Massive transformation. He wants us to see, here at the beginning what glorious things will happen in the least glorious places. Creation, when Jesus Christ comes back, creation will be made new, creation will be transformed, and it will rejoice in a way that it has not previously rejoiced. One commentator says that this is a joy that the new order of things will introduce when Jesus comes back. So in this prophecy, God reveals this. Part of the way that he aims to encourage us and them, and to help us and them to remain steadfast is by encouraging us to anticipate the kinds of change and the kind of transformation that he will bring about when he returns to take us, the ransomed home. He wants you to see yourself as ransomed by the blood of Christ, and he wants you, as part of staying steady and part of persevering through, through the difficult desert-like seasons, he says part of what will help you is anticipating The kind of transformation that he will bring about when he returns to take his ransomed home. There are details about your eternal home that are supposed to strengthen your faith here and now. Have you ever been around someone who's about to go on vacation and they're so carefree it's just utterly annoying? (laughs) Because they're about to leave? I don't care, I'm about to leave. We've all experienced it to some degree where you're about to leave for vacation. Something out of the ordinary or bad happens and you say, who cares? We're leaving. I don't care. We'll put the fire out when we get back. It doesn't matter. Um, The Roddins just went on a great vacation. If you're on Facebook, we all know how awesome the vacation was. (laughs) And uh, before they left, before they left, um, I didn't ask your permission to share that. I apologize sincerely. Um, Before they left, they had some significant car problems, like something big went out in one of their vehicles. And their response was who cares? We're leaving. I mean, that, that's most of our responses. And the reason I share that is that those kind of details about what's certain in the future, be it the near future or the eternal future, give us perspective in the present. The reality that our toes are going to be in the sand in like 48 hours changes the way we view a car problem or changes the way we view a hiccup or a setback. So there, there's something about insight into the future that gives us perspective here and now. And so what God is doing in Isaiah 35 is saying, I want you to know how amazingly better things are going to be. And that's going to help you have some perspective now as you will face certain setbacks and discouragements and hardships. Set your mind on the things above. Consider what's coming. Because it's going to be glorious and it's going to be more than you can imagine. Way better than any vacation we've been on. Even y'all's. Way better. Way better. Now, verse, the second part of verse 2 gets a little more involved. It says this. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. To what? To the desert. The glory of Lebanon is going to be given to the desert and the dry places. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Now, it is a, there's a big difference between making something better And making something capable of what was previously a total impossibility. Do you understand what I'm saying here? He's not just saying, I'm gonna make the the desert a little better. What's happening here is, is a transformation that only God can accomplish. There's a difference between making something better and making something capable of what was previously totally impossible. The reason that the wilderness and the dry land and the deserts are not filled with grand trees and magnificent vegetation is because they're not able to be. It's not possible. The conditions are not right for such abundance. It's lacking. You can go plant as many trees as you want in the desert, and they will all die. The conditions are not right to support it and to nourish it. Lebanon, though, Carmel, Sharon. I mean, Lebanon, that, if you want an abundance of wood that's of the highest quality to build something that's magnificent, you go to Lebanon. That's where you get that. Lebanon was glorious. Carmel and Sharon, these were the places that were all together. Different from the desert, they hold within themselves a kind of glory that the deserts could not produce. And rather than simply improving desert conditions, God is literally taking the glory of Lebanon and giving it to the desert wasteland. That's the kind of transformation He brings about in Christ. He's taking the glory of Lebanon and placing it on the desert wasteland. That's more than saying, I'm going to make the desert not quite so miserable. The glory of Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon, I'm going to place it on the desert wastelands. He is, in effect, looking at the wastelands, and he is saying, there's a glory that you will have that you did not previously have because I'm going to place the glory of another upon you. Just marvel at that, just from a physical standpoint, a geographic, the earth standpoint. Who else but our creator God could take the glory of one geographic area that's amazing and and lush And fruitful, and place it on a wasteland, thereby transforming the wasteland. Who else but our God could do something so amazing as our Creator? With that change in view that will come over the deserts and the dry places, God now turns our attention to the inhabitants and those who are in such areas. And His encouragement is for strength. Look at verses three and four. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Amen, indeed. He, behold your God. He will come and save you. First, I want you to take notice of the problem. God is addressing people of whom the Assyrian Empire is a very real threat. In the very next chapter, a transition begins to where um, the Assyrian exile is going to happen to Israel. And even beyond that, the Babylonian exile is going to happen, and it's going to be even worse. And so, indeed, tough times lie ahead for Israel. There's a lot of heartache that's going to happen, and the threat is such that they're sitting here now, not knowing what's going to happen, and they're saying, "The future is uncertain. I don't know how things are going to change. I think maybe my livelihood's going to be different. Maybe my family's going to be threatened in a way that, that has not been previously threatened, and they're concerned, they're anxious, they're fearful about what might happen. The threat is very real. And the problem that God is addressing, God is addressing, is not the threat. He's addressing the fear and the anxiety that they have because of the threat. And before I speak a word about how God helps us, I really just want for each of us to take a minute to marvel and to acknowledge that our God cares for us when we're anxious and fearful. Some of y'all need to hear that this morning because a lot of times for people who struggle with anxiety and fear, there's a lot of shame that goes along with it. You think, man, why can't I be stronger? Why can't I rally on this thing? And what I want you to know this morning is that God cares for you in your anxiety and in your your fear, mainly because he's provided a way so you don't have to be anxious and fearful. He cares for you. He's not just annoyed by you, frustrated with you, tired of your fearfulness. He provides something for us in it. So for a moment, just marvel that your God is so good, so gracious, so merciful, that he cares for us in our fear and our anxiety. One reason that this matters is found in the phrase, be strong, fear not. There's an exclamation point there. Be strong, fear not. What we need to know is fear takes away our strength. Fear zaps your strength. Some of you may have experienced this in a very real way, where something out of the ordinary happens, or something terrifying happens, or there's uncertainty in the future, and you just find yourself sort of frozen, just sort of weak, just feeling like, oh my gosh, what, what am I, I going to do? How can, we, how can we move forward? And you feel just that absolute zapping of strength that fear does. Fear takes it away from you. Fear takes away your strength. It leaves us feeling like our hands are weak. Like our knees are feeble. And it makes us less agile for the gospel and for the forward movement of the kingdom of God. God's making it clear here. You cannot move forward in the work I've called you to for my kingdom in a way that is fearful and anxious. You're less agile because your hands are weak and your knees are feeble. So what is it that God provides? We see that he cares, we see that he provides, but what is it specifically that God provides? And the answer isn't immediately obvious when you read the verses. The answer is each other. What he provides is one another. What he provides is Christ first and a people who, when they give themselves to Christ, as it says in Corinthians, they can then give themselves to one another. Christ transformed us in a manner that we can help each other when we are fearful and when we are anxious. He gives us one another, particularly other people who will come and speak truth to us. Some of us just think that when someone's hurting, you just say whatever it takes to make them feel better. What will ultimately help the most is truth. And what I want us to see, look at these verses. It's not obvious at first, but in verse 3 it says, Strengthen the weak hands. It, it, the implication is that there are some who have weak hands and there are some who need to strengthen those who have weak hands. He's not saying, go strengthen your own weak hands. He's saying, I've, uh, in Christ, I've given you a people who can help you with that. It, it says, make firm the feeble knees. So there are some who have feeble knees and there are some who need to make firm the feeble knees. And then the next one's a little more obvious say to those who have an anxious heart. That's how it happens. You speak something to those who have an anxious heart. When there's a worldly threat, and they're wanting worldly security, and their strength is zapped by fear, you say something to them, and you say something of significance. And what is it? Be strong, fear not. Behold, Jesus is coming to save you. It's amazing what God provides for us in these verses. So it's twofold. You might be sitting there thinking, Man, I'm fearful and anxious, and I hope someone comes and talks to me. What a blessing that God would provide that. And here's the other side of it, the flip side of the coin that may be a bigger threat for us. If you have no view towards those who are weak, if you have no view towards those who are feeble, if you have no view towards those who are anxious and fearful, if they only frustrate you because you just want to move forward and get some things done, I would encourage you to repent because God says you should have a view. You should be actually looking out for those who are weak, feeble, fragile, anxious, and you should be looking for a word, a promise from the Lord that you can give to them that will make their hands strong and make their knees strong and and make their heart not anxious. Isn't that crazy? We do that with words. (laughs) God's strength is so much, the transformation is so huge in Christ that it is with words that we allow and can see In the here and now, that that kind of transformation where people can can move forward and not just stay fearful and weak. This command is to help people, to help those in such a condition so that they'll be strong. Help those who dread the future and are overwhelmed in the present. Help those who don't feel like they can take one more setback. It's a help that reflects the help we have in Christ. He went to such an extent to save you and to give you strength. All we're doing is modeling the love of Christ when we help people in that manner. And the reason is you cannot be fearful, anxious, and strong all at the same time. It doesn't work that way. Some of us go in and out of seasons to where we need that kind of help because we cannot be fearful, anxious, and strong all at the same time. So God cares for us when we're anxious. God cares for us when we're, fe- when we're fearful because fear takes away our strength. And God provides other people to help us through this. And I've already kind of spoiled the punchline a little bit here, but how are we to help one another in the realities by speaking God's promises and pointing each other to future realities and to current realities. It's not all future for for us. It's all future for them, for the Israelites, but not for us because there's some current realities that we're going to talk about in a minute that are a huge encouragement to God and his people. Verse 4 says, be strong, fear not, and behold. What do we behold? That God will come and save us. God will come and save us. I want you to think about how that actually affects your Tuesday or your Wednesday. You're in the middle of work stuff. You're in the middle of marital stuff. You're in the middle of whatever. And is there any moment where you, where you can stop and say, you know what? God's coming to save us. Is there ever a time where you as a leader of your family, look at your family and say, hey, let's gain some perspective right here. We're all kind of flipping out. Um, guess what? God's coming to save us. How does that inform this situation? This is the Christmas story. Jesus is coming to save you. As you struggle through your very difficult realities, Jesus provides you something to anticipate. This time of year is full of anticipation. Um, I'll confess, there's a lot of Hallmark Christmas movies going on in the Sutton house. And they're not like the most gospel-centered things. They're not like satanic. Most of them aren't, but they're not like the most gospel-centered things. And so there, there's, there's a lot that you can find yourself anticipating. But what I want us to make sure we're doing is the people of God you're called to anticipate what Christ has made for you to anticipate. The only reason you have anything to anticipate is because Jesus has accomplished something for you to anticipate. Something for you to particularly look forward to. In the new heavens, and the new earth, and the way things are going right now, don't just anticipate what you want to anticipate. If you're limited to, you know what, one day I won't be sick anymore and that's it. Man, you're, you're aiming low. You're aiming very low. Because what he has in store is much bigger and much more glorious, and it's, a, it's glorious eternally. He's given us things to look forward to so that we can stay sane and so that we can stay steadfast as we deal with loss and heartache and uncertainty and health issues, financial issues, fatigue, confusion, anguish, fear, and anxiety. In the middle of all of it, God speaks through others for us to behold, and not just so that we can make sense of our fear and anxiety, but so that we can move on from it. Some of y'all need to know this morning, you may think, man, I'm fearful, I'm anxious, things just weigh me down, and I just, I'm, I'm tired, I don't want to put forth any more effort, and what I want you to know is that you have the freedom to be strong and trust God's promises. In Christ, you don't just need to understand your fear and anxiety, that's part of it, but you need to understand that in Christ you have the freedom to move on from the fear and to move on from the anxiety and to be strong as you behold behold your God who is coming to save you. It's very real, and while it may seem like a very distant thought to some of us, it is extremely tangible because when you set your eyes and your mind on the realities of Jesus, Ben and I were talking about Hebrews this morning, set your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, something significant happens, and believe it or not, the fear and the anxiety will will be subsiding, it will go away, and it won't be the only thing in the forefront because you'll find yourself strong and built up as you behold our God. So really you would think, just shut it and stop the sermon right there. That's good news. Jesus is coming to save us. What more could we ask for? But God wants to encourage you even more. Your loving God this morning, the, the Sunday before Christmas, wants to encourage you even more. Look at verse five. Then the eyes of the blind... Shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Again, what I want you to see is this is not just a picture of things being better in heaven, of health being better, or vision being better, or hearing being better. It's about being complete. One day, when God returns to save us, there will be no more checkups, no more need for medication. No more late nights trying to soothe and comfort sick children. God wants us to be encouraged now because eternally we will be complete. And he keeps going. Look at verse 6. Then shall the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is interesting because if you've read through the Gospels, you know that this has happened. Jesus when he came to earth and began his ministry, there was an inauguration period where this prophecy that happened hundreds of years before, Jesus looked at the lame and said, get up. And you know what that guy did? He leaped. He looked at the blind and he, and he, he did his thing with the mud and the spit and they, and they could see. And so he actually has inaugurated the kind of healing that was prophesied here. And so we're, we can be encouraged that it's not, a, I mean, as if it's not enough just to heal the lame. Like, if it was, okay, here's the lame, they can walk. We'd all be like, oh, my goodness, but they're going to leap like a deer? Has anyone ever seen a deer leap? It's the most graceful, powerful, strong thing. They can jump fences and rocks and clear things that we could never clear on our best day. But the lame guy, yeah, he's going to leap like a deer. And the mute, it's not just that they can talk now, not just that they could say something, I mean, there are, there are birth defects, there are fetal alcohol syndrome things that, that, that sh- make children struggle to say things, struggle to communicate. They may not be mute, but they may struggle with that kind of thing. And this says, those who are mute, they're not just going to be able to, to communicate a little or say some words in a more clear manner, or even just talk. They're going to sing, and they're going to sing for joy. They're going to sing for joy. For God's work produces joy in his people. So, what else? What else could possibly be in store? Lord, why, why, why are you continuing in this encouragement? Look at verse 7. It says, um, right above it For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, the burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground, springs of water, and the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. One problem with the desert is that there's no relief. Now, there are real problems that we've addressed this morning, but there are also a section of problems that we could probably label first world problems, because I was trying to figure out a way to explain this, and I think the only encounter that most of us have had with burning sand is on our beach vacations. So imagine you've come from frolicking in the salty waves, and it's 75 feet to the pool, and you've got this desert wasteland of hot sand between you. And imagine, some of us have experienced you get halfway there, and it's so stinking hot (laughs) that you kind of panic and realize, I got 30 feet to the pool, there's nowhere to go, and you kind of freak out. So that's all we got for that this morning. But what I want you to do is imagine that, that kind of feeling of not having any relief, can't find your flip-flops, whatever, imagine that for miles And miles and miles and miles, miles of burning sand as far as one can see. Consider that context and these words from one author. He says, to the weary traveler in the wasteland, nothing can be more cheering and refreshing than to find water. What God wants us to know is that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be abundant cheering, abundant refreshing, As our God is able to turn even the desert, which can blossom like a rose now, and he can turn such a thing into a pool of water where there's sweet relief, sweet encouragement, sweet cheering, and sweet refreshing. Look at verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. When Christ returns to save his people, there will not only be abundance and majesty and healing and refreshing and strength in the desert, as if that's not enough, but there will be a highway, the nature of which is holy. And it will only belong to the ransomed. It will belong to those in Christ. It will belong to those who have had their debt paid by Christ as he ransomed you from eternal separation from God. You can imagine in a desert how, e- how easy it is to get lost. There are no roads or trails or communication. Even if a trail is made by an animal or a person, it's just a matter of time for the wind, hot, hot wind blows and the sand covers it up. It's easy to get lost. But there's a highway here so clearly marked that even a fool can't screw up the directions. If you've ever been in a car with someone who's not good with directions and they're driving... It's bad news. You just get frustrated with them. It's like, man, let someone else do the directions for the love. Here, even the fool, even the fool can't mess up the directions. I hope you're comforted by that because this fool is. I'm really comforted by that. I know my tendency to think I could mess up what Jesus has done. And there's some really sweet encouragement here. For us in our feebleness, a guy named Hinkstenberg remarks, The circumstance that even the foolish cannot miss the way indicates the abundant fullness of this salvation, in consequence of which it is so easily accessible. There's no human effort or skill or excellence that is required to attain possession of it. What he's alluding to here is the fact that grace is not cheap, but it is free, and it can't be earned and it has nothing to do with your rank. You may be very bright and very brilliant. And you may be sitting next to someone who's not quite so bright and brilliant. That does not matter in the eyes of the Lord. Even the fool can't. It's going to be so clear, so certain. Part of the encouragement that God has for his children as we anticipate his return is to know that God has, God's grace has us on a way, on a highway, that leads with unerring sureness to the city where, where Jesus Christ reigns eternally as King. And that is, that is sure. That is where we are headed if we are in Christ. Look at verse 9. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found, but the redeemed shall walk there. Real simple. For your safety and guaranteed delivery to the eternal kingdom, God even goes as far as to protect you from the wild beasts. The point here, we don't want to go into the illustration too much because there's a lot we could talk about for a long time, but just the main point is nothing will keep his ransomed from returning to him. Nothing. The biggest threat you could imagine will not keep his ransomed from returning to him. There is no worldly threat that will ever trump any of God's promises. And verse 10 says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And finally, sorrow and sighing. Shall flee away. As you return to the Lord when Jesus comes back to save us, and as you make your way up this highway in the wilderness, what you will find is yourself overcome with joy. And joy not like ours now that we experience from time to time with heartache and sadness often a mix in between those experiences, but what is is called here is everlasting joy non-stop joy for all of eternity. And as you're coming up that highway, and as you're overcome with joy, you'll look around and see all the ransomed gathering with you coming up the highway, and the thing that will inevitably happen in that moment is singing, joyful, joyful singing as you gather with the rest of the redeemed and come near your God without fear. God, oh, that is such good news. This is reality. This is, this is more of a reality than any worldly threat you will ever face. You will come up the highway. You'll be overcome with joy. And as you look around in the ransomed or gathering, you will sing for joy. You will obtain gladness and joy. And in that moment, it says that sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The promise here in verse 10 of sorrow and sighing fleeing away takes us back to the command in verse 4. The promise in verse 10 takes us back to the command in verse 4. Look at verse 4 again with me. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, and behold your God. Sorrow and sighing are often the responses of a fearful and anxious heart. Now, you can have sorrow, genuine sorrow. The Lord calls us to weep with those who weep. But there's a time where that ends up being the product of an anxious and a fearful heart. And God's saying, there will be sorrow and there will be sighing. And you'll be tempted to be anxious and fearful, but you don't have to be because of what I've provided. And so I feel like this promise kind of takes us back to this command. And and this is what I found when I was looking at this. Sorrow and sighing are often the responses of a fearful and an anxious heart. I've never before considered a connection that was made by one theologian. One theologian, as I was reading through Isaiah stuff, because Isaiah is tricky to preach through, He referred to this this person with the anxious heart as being hasty of heart. Write that in your notes if you're taking notes. Being hasty of heart. I was puzzled the first time I saw this because I thought, well, I know I struggle with anxiety. It's something i got to fight against every day, but I've never considered that being hasty of heart. I felt like anxiety is sort of a state that you're in when things aren't maybe the way you wish or the way you prefer. You're uneasy about the way things are, but haste? Hate Being hasty is, is doing things before it's time for them to be done. It's rushing things. And I didn't see a connection. So I went and I looked up the original Hebrew word and sure enough, it's hasty. The word means hasty. I was looking for a way to explain why that theologian was not as smart as I was and found out, turns out, I'm not um, as brilliant as this guy who wrote this big old book on Isaiah. It means hasty. So I went and, and, and I kind of tried to look through this and and what I found is this. I think that the implication is that in our fearful anxiety, we're often tempted to rush God's plan. In our fearful anxiety, when we're facing worldly threats, we lose sight of promises, and we're indeed hasty of heart because what we do is we try to rush God's plan. To be hasty concerning his timing. To be hasty even to, um, in regards to his return. I want to be honest for a moment here. These are brutally honest human moments where we look at God and we say, how much more? What gives, God? How much longer until you come back? How much more do you think I can possibly take? Or you look at a family that's going through something that's very, very difficult, and you say, how much more do you think that they can take, God? What, what gives? And our fearful and anxious hearts want to rush God's plan I want to be hasty concerning God's plan. These are the moments where we hear of some new threat of terrorism. We hear of four children losing their lives because they love Yeshua. These are moments where you see a school being shot up or a cafe full of hostages. Or maybe it's just another sleepless night. Maybe it's being in the middle of the daunting task of caring for an ailing parent or trying to navigate through the uncertain waters of parenting or job loss or marital crisis or health problems that come with age. Very real hardships. Very real human moments where we're so aware of our flesh. And we cry out to God and we say, What gives? We want to rush him. We want him to come back sooner so that our immediate problem will be taken care of. I was talking to my dad about this dynamic, and he said, Man, it sounds like Job's wife. I was like, Oh, dad, that's a good sermon illustration. I'm stealing it. Job's wife was hasty in regard to God's timing. Rather than looking at her husband and saying, strengthen your weak hands and make firm your feeble knees, be strong, take heart, your God is going to save you. She looked at him and said, curse God and die. That's a hasty heart. That's a hasty heart. What we're talking about here is trust. That's what we began with, that's what we're ending with. We're talking about trust. God encourages us to work hard Not to just trust him in vague and general terms of sovereignty, but in specific terms of timing. That's a challenge. If you're a control freak at all, that's a huge challenge. God is urging us through Isaiah 35 to not just trust him in these vague and general terms of, yeah, he's a sovereign God with a good plan and it'll work out. But then when something happens, we're like, get me out of this now. He's saying, don't just trust me in these general terms of sovereignty. You trust me in these specific terms of timing. Even when it feels like you can't take one more setback, trust me in these specific terms of timing. He's saying, "Don't, don't say that you trust my sovereign plan and then try to rush me. God doesn't need a push. He doesn't need a nudge. He's, he's perfect in his plan. he's perfect in his timing. I don't want you to turn there, but just consider a few examples. Consider Abraham, who was to wait for over a hundred years for the offspring that would become an everlasting kingdom. He had to wait until um, having babies didn't make sense anymore. In, at all, that, he had to be patient. And what happened when he, when he was hasty and anxious of heart? He made a mistake. His solution was not sufficient. He didn't come up with his own solution. And then God looked down and said, Oh, you know, I didn't think of that. That's fine. Sure, sleep with your servant. God didn't say that. God said, my plan is good. And my timing's perfect. And then even after that, him climbing the hill with that blessing of a child. And having to trust God's timing to provide the ram in the thicket. I mean... He could have been hasty and said, you know what? When his son looked at him and said, Dad, where's the, where's the sacrifice? He could have looked at his son and said, I'll fix it. I don't know, and, and, and come up with a solution. But he wasn't hasty. He trusted God's timing, and God's timing, again, like every other time, was perfect. As the time's nearing for him to sacrifice his son, there's a ram in the thicket. The timing was perfect. Consider Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph who was rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery, separated from his father, imprisoned for years, set up and lied about by Potiphar's wife. And that didn't all happen because he was a creep. That happened because he was following God's plan. He was being faithful and obedient. He was a bit of a punk with his brothers, we'll admit that. But in general, he was being obedient. So he was sold into slavery and lied about, rejected, only later to rise to power. A Jew over Egypt. That sounds like pools of water in a desert to me. A Jew over Egypt. Much like streams and pools in the burning desert sand, so that the people of God in God's perfect timing would be preserved in the land of Goshen and shown favor by God through Pharaoh of all people. That's good timing right there. No doubt there may have been times where Joseph wondered, how much more could I possibly take? Imprisoned, separated, missing his dad. I mean, so easy for him to go into that. But we know now, looking at it, God's timing was perfect. Consider the New Testament, Joseph. You're pregnant? And he's going back through. That doesn't line up. You're my virgin betrothed. What in the world's going on? And by all accounts, he could have quickly rushed into a number of things, her being um, um, taken care of and disciplined, he could have rushed into, he could have looked at Mary and said, you know what, I don't want to have any part of this. I'm, I don't know what happened. I'm done. This freaks me out. I don't care if it's an angel or not. I'm done. He could have been very hasty, and he wasn't. And we know that the result was a beautiful virgin birth that's unlike anything that has ever happened before in the history of the world. God's timing is perfect for us today as we sit here. The best way to rightly anticipate the not yet is to do so smack dab in the middle of the already. And when I say the already, I'm talking about this right here. This gathering of God's people called the church. The best way that we anticipate the not yet is, is by enjoying and tasting of it here in the already. For the Jew, the prophecy was all about the future. Things had not yet happened. But for us, we have experienced some of what's mentioned in this chapter. I had to be reminded of that this week as I was preparing the sermon. The staff meeting this week did so much to prepare the sermon. I was talking about the not yet aspect of this big Isaiah 35 chapter. And Ben said, "Um, well, it's not all not yet. There's some already there that we've experienced. And I said, shut up. You're not preaching this week. I got this. (laughs) But it kind of got, I was like, no, it's like 99% not yet. And I started looking at it and I was like, ooh, we, we have tasted a little bit of that oh, oh, we, that's not something we just have to wait on. That is something that, in fact, in Christ. And I started going through it, and the sermon changed. It was, it was beautiful as I began to look at this and see that for us, we have experienced some of what has been mentioned in this chapter. As we live in these final days that exist between the coming of Christ to earth and his promised future return to earth, God aims to encourage us with future realities of the new heavens and the new earth and the transformation that will take place but he wants us to anticipate those things while experiencing a taste of them in the already with the church. Here's what I mean. How many marriages in the church were a desert wasteland and God placed the glory of Christ on that marriage? How many marriages were a desert wasteland? Fruitfulness? Ha! And God takes the glory of Jesus Christ and he places it on that marriage, making it capable of something it was not capable of before. Fruitfulness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We've seen that happen here. There have been times where I've sat with people and they've told me what's going on in pastoral counsel in their marriage. And I'm just like, oh, dang, that's really bad. Oh, man, that's... that's ooh. Let me pray, but I don't got anything to say. I'm shocked. But the reality is, God can take the glory of Jesus Christ and place it We've seen it over and over and over again. And not just in marriages that were a total train wreck, but sometimes our Tuesday is a desert wasteland. It's usually Thursday or Friday, but sometimes we have a desert wasteland in our, in our homes and it's like, there's no joy and gentleness here. And God takes the glory of Jesus Christ if we will but take the moment to behold him and he can transform that day and transform that dynamic in your marriage with your children. How many relationships have been all but dead, but Christ breathed life back into it? Relationships where you were separated maybe from one of your children, maybe alienated from, from someone you were once close to, and you're, your hands are in the air and you're saying, i got nothing left. And somehow, in some way, Jesus Christ breathes life back into that relationship, making it fruitful again. We've experienced that in part here, and it doesn't stop there. How many have experienced healing, actual healing? Some in here have experienced significant healing, healing of the mind, healing of the heart, actual weak hands made strong again, actual feeble knees made firm again. We've experienced healing in part, but not completely, because some have not experienced healing. There's been times where we've prayed for healing for someone, and they didn't experience it. But it's not all loss and heartache, because we know it is more than certain that they will one day, eternally. So we taste of it now. We see that it's good. and We know what the eternal reality is. And how many of us have been strengthened when we were previously weak and anxious? How many of us had no idea, like, I want to put one foot in front of the other, and I don't even know what direction to go. And we've been strengthened with joy. We've been strengthened when we were previously weak and anxious because a brother or a sister was looking out for us and came and talked to us. In one of my most dark moments in my life where I was struggling with depression, the elders of this church came and prayed over me. And the anxiety and the fear went away. And it subsided. Not immediately. but There was a process where something real was happening there. And I got to experience healing in a way that I would not experienced it before. How many of us have been overcome with joy that leads to singing? How many of us have been overcome with joy that leads to singing? I'm not talking about when the Taylor Swift song comes on and you're like, oh, and you just join in. Aaron Hamilton, wherever you are today. I'm talking about that kind of joy that, that I experienced in the back this morning when two people are leading worship and all of a sudden, it sounds like more than two people. This is beautiful and we're ramping up. Scripture actually says that if you're not feeling it, if you're not feeling the church thing on you know, a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or wherever in your car, if you're not feeling it, Scripture says sing until you do. There's something that happens there. How many of us have experienced this joy where we're overcome by joy and it leads to singing? Is this not what we do every single week as we gather for corporate worship? How many of us have heard words through sermons or through life groups or through a brother or sister in Christ that strengthened our weak hands and made firm our feeble knees again? Certainly, it's not all joy and singing, but it is also not all sorrow and sighing. We have to have a perspective that is affected by what Christ has done for us now and what Christ will do for us eternally. The best way to anticipate what the church will one day be is to enjoy what it currently is, a bride being made beautiful, though ever so slightly at times, as we await the return of our Lord. This is what Christ has given us to anticipate this Advent season. Anticipate the not yet while being Immensely blessed in the already as members of one another in Christ. Turn to Luke 2 for our supper. Luke chapter 2, I want you to read it with me. Aaron Adele brought this up in staff meeting. I think the staff just wrote half the sermon this week. Luke 2, chapter 8 is one of the Advent readings this week, and it's something that we're, we're pretty familiar with, especially this time of year. So we'll read it together, not out loud, I'll read it, y'all read it, you know, in your minds. Luke 2, verse 8 says, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear and the angel said to them fear not behold doesn't that sound familiar that sounds like isaiah 35 something's going on now in this field with these shepherds that's never happened before they're getting a glimpse of something that no one has ever had a glimpse of before and the angel says fear not i know what you're going to be ten- your tendency is fear not behold i bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Imagine being shepherd in that moment. Imagine hearing an angelic chorus that's not just angelic, it's actually angels singing of the glory of God as the glory of God is present in a new way. In the Advent reading for this verse this week, Ray Ortland Jr. writes, God drew aside the curtain of the heavens so that the shepherds could see reality. His glory, which is always there, but is often concealed from our view. He lets us nibble at the edges. That's kind of what our supper is each week, nibbling at the edges. He lets us nibble at the edges. He allows us to overhear the sounds of heaven. As the door opens briefly before closing again, But we can see enough to know that God's presence is fullness of joy. We saw enough in Christ. The shepherds saw enough in that moment of angels singing of the glory of God to know that God's presence is fullness of joy and that God is good and that his goodness, is, as he says, is of a spreading nature, spilling out of heaven, down into the world, spreading out widely to all the people without rank, without distinction. Every single supper that we take each week is one closer to the return of Christ. We partake in the already as we participate and anticipate the not yet, and we nibble at the edges in this supper. Matthew 26, 29 says this. This is one way that Christ wants you to enjoy this supper this morning while anticipating what it will one day be. Christ says... As he's reclining with his disciples and taking the supper, he says, I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We take this supper together every week. The next time that Jesus takes it will be with us in his Father's kingdom. Let's pray, and then we'll distribute the elements. Lord, I'm thankful that you're coming to earth, and your revealing of your glory is of a spreading nature, and that you allow us to nibble at the edges. I'm thankful that you're great and greatly to be praised, and that week in and week out, day in and day out, we can understand a little bit more of what that means. I pray that your people are encouraged this morning. I pray that as we take this supper, it would be sweet as we consider the next time you take it will be with us in your Father's kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for revealing eternal realities to common, fragile people who struggle with fear and anxiety. Thank you for being tender and gracious with us when we're inclined to want to rush your plan and kind of push you along because we don't like where we're at or or what's going on, Lord, you are so good to us. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can gather this morning and celebrate a virgin birth and celebrate one who came to earth, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, and conquered death and met us while we were still sinners. He died for us. Lord, what encouragement you've given us this morning. I pray that we would take the supper humbly and with very, very thankful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.